Good morning. It's a beautiful Lord's Day. It's been a beautiful past few days and what an honor it is to be able to come here this morning on such a day and worship our God and we're so thankful that that you're here this morning. I know it's an extended weekend for several of us because schools are out and we have a lot of people that are gone today that are taking advantage of the extended weekend. Uh, but that also means that we have some people that are visiting with us as well. And uh, we are glad that you've chosen to come our way. And I hope that you'll hang around and give us a chance to express our appreciation to you for being here this morning. Of course, uh, tonight at 5 o'clock, I hope you'll make your plans to be back. We're going to have congregational singing. That's always a wonderful, wonderful worship service. And there's going to be a list down here on the table in front after services are dismissed. And uh, you just sign that list, men, if you want to lead a song tonight. And I just hope all of you will plan to be back tonight for that and uh, bring you a cough drop and a clear voice. And let's enjoy singing praises to God uh, together tonight. You know, the problem of prejudice and respect of persons has to be faced anew by every generation. In days gone by, we know that it was between rich and poor and Jew and Gentile. It was between Roman and barbarian. Today, it's between rich and poor, management and labor, black and white, educated and uneducated. The problem is still here, and each of us has to face it in the particular circumstances of, of his own life. The word prejudice literally refers to the prejudgment of another person. Without really knowing that particular person and having sufficient knowledge of that individual to have an intelligent opinion, one judges that individual. Maybe because of his race, or maybe because of his economic status, or some other outward circumstance in life, we, we judge that person as being an unworthy person, and as a result, we deny that individual certain rights and privileges. Sometimes today, we call it snobbery. It may be a form of idolatry. The disposition to elevate some to positions of preeminence in the church and then to relegate to the realm of obscurity the brother of low degree is opposed to the very spirit of Christianity and is wicked in the sight of God. We need to realize today that some of the most effective Work being done in the Lord's kingdom is being done by those humble, sacrificing servants who labor for the Lord and they're motivated out of sheer love for the Lord and they want no worldly acclaim whatsoever. Now, I think all of us recognize the fact that there is a problem of prejudice in our world today. But there's also a problem of prejudice in the church of our Lord today, whether we realize it or not, and I'm afraid more often than not, we may fail to recognize this. 
And so the question we, we must ask ourselves, that, that I must ask myself, do we have a problem in this area? Well, perhaps we do to a certain degree. We certainly may not mean to be that way. We certainly may not intend to come across that way. But if we're not really careful, even subconsciously, we can treat others in a way that demonstrates to them an attitude of snobbery. You know, sometimes when, when one becomes a Christian and obeys the gospel, or, or maybe they place membership with a particular congregation, you know, that attitude may be seen. If we're not careful sometimes, even unintentionally, we have the tendency not to include, we continue maybe to just stick to our own little group or groups, and we remain in the comfort of our own little place, and sometimes we, we leave individuals to themselves, and that can cause a lot of discouragement. But folks, we need to realize how important it is to always reach out to other people. We have to avoid being cliquish in our attitude toward other people. We need to avoid the attitude of excluding others because they may not be exactly like we are in physical appearance or in some other way. And I think it's a sad commentary when anyone cannot be made to feel welcome and apart when they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, we need to be talking to these folks instead of about these folks. In my opinion, it ought never be the case that an individual makes their way into a church building, perhaps into the foyer, and they find themselves kind of standing there by themselves, nobody talking to them. Or maybe within, within the walls of an auditorium after services are dismissed, you may find an individual who's just kind of standing there hoping and longing that somebody might just come and, and give a hello to that individual. Sometimes people will say to me, you know, well, well who is that? Where are they from? Well, we ought to go to these folks. We ought to go to them with a smile and introduce ourselves and let them know that we're glad that they're here. Now, the book of James is what we're going to be looking at today. The book of James is a very practical book. I think if you consider the book of James, we know that it deals with everyday Christian living. And I think this great inspired writer deals with this particular subject in a very effective way and manner that we can apply to all of our lives. And the point that I want us to get today is this. The church of our Lord must always be the place where all people are equal. Behind the lines of World War I, rest houses were operated that were designed to serve as places of fellowship for soldiers. Now, it didn't matter if you were an officer 
or if you were enlisted. That place was for you. And over the entrance of such houses were found these words, Abandon all rank, ye who enter here. And I suggest to you that that principle must be true in the Lord's church today. The things that serve to classify and separate people out in the world today that we're very much aware of must not be allowed to divide people in the Lord's church. In the words of Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither bond nor free, there's neither male nor female, but ye are all one in Christ Jesus. If you have your Bibles today, I want to encourage you to turn to the book of James. We're going to be looking at chapter 1 in particular, verses 9 through 11, and then we'll be taking a look at James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. In the first place this morning, I want us to focus and to understand the nature of of equality in Christ. Now, equality is one of those states, I believe, today that we talk about a lot, but we know very little. We know that the Declaration of Independence says that all men are created equal. And we are aware of all the various laws, all the legislation that has taken place to ensure the civil rights of American citizens. And yet we also realize that absolute human equality in society at large is an impossibility. For example, graduates from the same class begin with seemingly equal opportunities for success and yet they come to a vastly different end in their lives. You see, even if people could be guaranteed equal training and equal opportunities for success in a profession, and even if they could have equal protection under the law, you still have the intangible factors of desire and perseverance that would bring people to different levels of success and achievement in life. There is only one place anywhere where all people are and must truly be equal, and that one place is in Christ Jesus. Look at James chapter 1, if you will, verses 9 through 11. The Bible says there, Let the brother of low degree, the poor man, let him rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he's made low, because just like the flower of the grass 
he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withers the grass, the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perishes, so shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Now we know that one of the most common bases of social distinction is the disparity of wealth among people today. Now most of those earliest Christians were apparently of humble status. Many of the early Christians didn't have a lot of this world's goods, but there were some among them who were in fact very wealthy. Now James here does not require a communistic, a socialistic state of economic equality to be established among brethren. James does not in any way give the idea that those with wealth have to give to those without until all things become equal. In fact, that particular idea, that particular principle is totally foreign to the Scriptures. But the Holy Spirit did cause James to require that these differences, as far as our economic status goes, these differences should never be the basis of discrimination. James says here that the brother of low degree, that is the Christian who is poor in regard to the things of this world, that individual needs to glory in his high estate. That is his share in the spiritual treasure that is not of this world. Now a poor man might be prone to view himself as a failure. He might be prone to view himself as, as being totally without value because that's the way the world may see him. But in Jesus Christ, this same poor man views himself completely differently. And as a result, he comes to have a new sense of worth. This poor man realizes he's important to God. God sent his son to die for him, John 3 and verse 16. He realizes that, that he is important to the world as he's to be the salt of the earth. And the light of the world, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. This poor man has every privilege that belonged to children in the family of God. On the other hand, the rich man is to rejoice in that he is made low. Because he realizes just like the flower of the grass, he's going to fade away. In other words, this rich man learns that his material riches cannot buy spiritual security. He recognizes that a right relationship with God is available only in Christ. And so the rich man obeys the very same commandments unto salvation that the poor man obeys and as a result he uses his possessions to glorify God. That's why in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 3 Paul said for if a man thinks he is something when he's nothing 
He deceives himself. But let every man prove his own work. But just assuming that a certain poor man and a certain rich man come to see themselves in their true spiritual perspective, and these two individuals bow in mutual submission before the Lord, there's still the problem of how they're going to be treated by other brethren in the church. Will some be tempted to show partiality toward one over the other? Undoubtedly, there's going to be that strong temptation. And so James here in our text addresses this problem. Look here at James chapter 2 and verse 1. James says here, My brethren, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now the faith is the Christian religion. To hold the faith is to live like a Christian. Respect of persons is simply partiality. It is favoritism based upon external grounds. So folks, here is the command that we have. James says here, don't try to be a Christian while showing partiality to other people. Now that's very strong language. Somebody asked the question, does this rule out special friendships in my life? Does this mean that I can never refuse to associate with, with somebody that wants to be with me? Certainly, not at all. Christians can discriminate. Christians must discriminate among their associates, but they do so on spiritual grounds rather than on carnal grounds. For example, the Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 24, he says, Do not make a friendship with an angry man. With a furious man, do not go. Now, are you going to refuse friendship to an individual because they don't live in as nice of a house as you live in? Are you going to refuse friendship to someone because they don't live in the kind of neighborhood that you may live in or some other, some other difference there? Of course not. But the Bible also says you shouldn't run around with a rich kid who's a spoiled brat and has a bad temper. You need to avoid that kind of a person. You discriminate among people but you do so on the right basis. In fact, there are other, other verses in the Bible that speak of the proper type of discrimination. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33, Paul said, don't be deceived. Evil companionships corrupt good morals. Now, having seen this morning that all people are in fact equal before God, and that it's sinful 
to show respect of persons because every individual in the church is entitled to the same privileges, we must point out that it's going beyond proper bounds to imply that there's no differences between people because there certainly are differences. We're told in 1 Peter 2 and verse 13 to honor the king. We're told in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 2 to pray for those in high places, elders and deacons, aged men and women. Men and women of great faith and courage are often singled out in Scripture, and they're declared to be worthy of special reward for their work of faith, their labor of hope, their patience. But what is taught here is, is that there's no place for worldly acclaim in Christianity. It's sinful to view and treat one another in the church based on physical blessings. Inasmuch as God is no respecter of persons, inasmuch as God shows no partiality, neither should we. Now James here in our text, beginning in chapter 2, gives an example of improper discrimination. Look at chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. James says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing come into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing, and you say, well, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves? Are you not showing partiality and have become judges of evil thoughts? Now the strict caste system of the Roman world created a number of social problems for the early church. And it's certainly not difficult to believe that the exact situation that, that James describes right here in James chapter 2 occurred in numerous assemblies of the church back in the first century. You know, today in 2011, if somebody were to come into our church building who fit the general description of the two individuals that we find here in James chapter 2, we might be prone to go to the one who is well-to-do and fits into our line of thinking, and boy, we'll butter him up. I mean, we'll go all out and, and make that individual feel welcome. We'll make sure that, that people talk to him and make sure he feels welcome, and we'll make sure that individual gets where he needs to go. We might even take him out to lunch after services are dismissed. But then somebody comes in who has a Christian heart, who's faithful to God. His appearance may not be what we're used to seeing. Maybe he's of a different race. Maybe there's other external factors involved. We might be uh, prone to 
give a little hello, but we're not going to go to any extra trouble perhaps to make that person feel really welcome. That's the kind of thing that James is talking about here. In first century churches that were composed of poor and humble people, there was the temptation, for example, to regard the conversion of a very rich, otherwise prominent man as a special event. They would really make a fuss over him. But there can be no distinctions in the church regarding wealth, race, or prestige. And neither can there be discrimination in reverse where a wealthy or influential man in the community is maybe treated with contempt and put in his place by the church. And so it was in the first century church, you could walk into a church building, you could walk into an assembly Uh, into a house, wherever the Christians were meeting, you could walk into an assembly, you could find a master and a slave that were sitting side by side. Or you could find an assembly where the slave was leading the service in the assembly where the master sat. And I think certainly we can see equivalent situations in our assemblies today. But then James adds a further reason as to why his readers should not despise the poor and flatter the rich. And the reason is given is because it's sinful. It's in defiance of God's will. And we also need to observe that it's from the poor that people are much more readily won to Christ. Wealthy individuals seemingly are more hostile to Christianity. Listen to what James says here in verse 5. James says in verse 5, Hearken, listen, my beloved brethren. Hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith? Heirs of the kingdom which he promised to them that loved him, but you have dishonored the poor. Do rich men not oppress you and drag you into courts? Do they not blaspheme the worthy name by which you are called? And so the point is therefore made with with forceful, forceful emphasis here that the people of God cannot be guilty of the sin of partiality. The church must be the one place where worldly standards of judgment and discrimination are abandoned. Spiritual brotherhood, the fact that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, has made Christians one and has established peace among those whom God is well pleased. But you know, in other parts of the Bible... There is teaching against this sin of partiality. The book of James isn't the only book that deals with this subject. The Old Testament likewise deals with this issue as well. For example, in Luke chapter 19 and verse 15, the Bible says, "...you shall do no unrighteousness in court. You shall not respect or be partial to the poor, or defer the person of the mighty or great, but in righteousness." You shall judge your neighbor. The New Testament 
also teaches this theme very extensively. For example, the events related to the conversion of Cornelius were used to teach Peter a very powerful lesson. And that lesson was stated in Peter's own words in Acts 10, verses 34 and 35. Peter said of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. And I think the Apostle Paul also affirmed this very truth in his writings. He said in Romans chapter 2 and verse 11 that there is no respect of persons with God. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 25, he said, But he that does wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. And there is no respect of persons. And as is the case with every Christian virtue, I think we can see impartiality among men exemplified best by Jesus Christ. Just look at the attitude that our Lord possessed toward other people. Our Lord's concern was to save the souls of men. He refused to be distracted from that purpose by considering the worldly status of individuals. Our Lord was willing to talk to and to teach Nicodemus, who was a ruler of the Jews, in John chapter 3. And yet he was willing to teach and offer salvation to those that the world considered as outcast in Luke 15, 1 and 2. Our Lord simply did not possess the terrible racial prejudice which so frequently showed itself among His own people. Our Lord taught that Samaritan woman who was considered an outcast, not only because she was a Samaritan, but she was a woman. She was very immoral. And our Lord took time with that woman. One considered an outcast. He taught her the greatest lesson on worship that's ever been taught in John chapter 4. Even the worst enemies of our Lord were forced to admit how impartial Jesus was in dealing with other people in Mark 12 and 14. And Jesus taught His followers to have the same impartiality that He showed. Our Lord commands us to treat other people just like we want to be treated, to practice the golden rule in our lives. But I want us to close this morning by looking at what James calls and refers to as the royal law. Now Christians are never to show favoritism to the rich over the poor or in other ways to become guilty of carnal or spiritual discrimination. To the contrary, we are encouraged to live by a nobler, a higher standard. James says we are to live by the royal law. 
A law that originates with King Jesus and a law that is bound upon all who are in his kingdom. In James chapter 2 and verse 8 and 9, James says, If, if you fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself you do well. But if you have respect of persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. Now, to keep this important command of loving one's neighbor as himself, but with partiality, is to sin. To say unto effect that, you know, I'm going to love my neighbor, but I'm going to choose my neighbors very carefully is a very foolish thing. In other words, we're not entitled to pick those that, that we're going to regard as neighbors and then sort of look down our noses at the rest of mankind. Now, the Jews here of our Lord's day told themselves that they were obligated only to their own race and then only to those that happened to be on the same social plane. And so they would love their neighbors if those neighbors were, you know, their own kind. And we remember how Jesus gave the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10 to rebuke this narrow, bigoted mind among the Jewish people. We remember that it was the Samaritan who gave aid to this foreigner of another race, and, and he therefore proved himself to be the real neighbor to the man in need. And Jesus closed that particular story in Luke 10, verse 37, with the words, You go and do, do likewise. But you know how people are. You know, people try to excuse themselves from these kinds of obligations, don't they? And so James poses a possible objection that some might raise to this teaching. Now, some of the Jews back in the first century were prone to regard the law of God as a series of just isolated injunctions. In other words, to, to keep one command of God was to gain credit. To break a command of God was to incur a debt. And so uh, a man in the Jewish religion could add and subtract until he arrived at a reasonable credit for himself. In other words, I've done mostly good. There's some things I'm not following as I should. And if the good I'm doing outweighs the negative I'm doing, then things are all right. And I think a lot of people brought this foolish notion into the Lord's church in the first century. And if you look down at verse 10 of James 2, James talks about this. He said, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not kill. Now, if you do not commit adultery, and yet you kill, you are become a transgressor of the law. And so Jesus taught here that the will of God is one great whole. And to break any part of it was to fall under its condemnation. 
For example, a man is a criminal in society, isn't he, if he breaks only one law? He doesn't have to break every law in the books. And so it is with the law of God. One is a sinner when he violates any part of God's holy word. Now, this particular part of James closes with an appeal for all of us as Christians to remember that we're going to be judged by the law of God. Those who want divine mercy must show mercy. James says in verse 12, So speak ye, and so do, as they who shall be judged by the law of liberty. Yes, the book of James is a practical book. It's a book that deals with the needs of modern man today. And we need to realize that involved in living a faithful Christian life is taking people who've been set right with God through Jesus Christ and setting them right with one another. And as followers of God today, we have to somehow overcome prejudice in our individual lives and within the congregations of the Lord's people. And I think this lesson has to be learned well if, if we're going to evangelize this world and if we're going to properly represent an impartial God to a class-conscious world. I want to close today with an illustration. I have in my hand here a $20 bill. Now, if I were to ask you today, if you would like this, would, you like to, would any of you like to have this $20? Raise your hand if you'd like to have this $20 bill. I want to see who's ignorant and who's not. I think all of you would like to have this $20 bill. Now, I'm not going to give this $20 bill away because we don't need to let it get out that Delray has given away money during Sunday morning services. But if, if I were to give away this $20 bill this morning, most of you would want it. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you would still like to have this $20 bill? Wow, still. It's pretty good. Now, suppose I throw it on the ground. There it is, and I stomp on it and all that and get dirt on it and grind it in. How many of y'all still want this $20 bill? You know, I was leaving the uh, Alabama-Auburn game a few weeks ago. Great Auburn comeback. I was distraught. The only thing that really helped me make it to my car is I looked down on the ground as I was leaving my seat and I found a $50 bill wadded up on the ground with a $10 bill. I smiled and then I frowned again and continued on to my car. But the point is, there was all kinds of trash on the ground, but I saw the green and I picked it up and I was happy. Now, no matter if I crumble this up, which I have, no matter if I throw it on the ground or squash it in the dirt with my foot, does this lose its value? Didn't lose its value whatsoever. Now, you see, sometimes as people, when we are crumpled up by life, when we feel like we've been ground in the dirt, when we feel like that, you know, we've just been stepped on, sometimes we have the tendency to think that we're not all that valuable. Sometimes we let the world tell us that, you know, we're just not worth all that 
much. But you see, you never lose your value. Your value as a person is not based upon what you have. It's not based upon who you know. Your value as a person is based upon who you are and whose you are. Your value as a person is based upon the fact that people in your church family love you and God loves you as well. He loved you enough to send His Son Jesus to die for you. And today, if you're not in the family of God, if you're not a part of the Lord's family, you can do so. If you believe in Jesus with all of your heart that He's the Son of God, you can repent of your sins. And even today, you can be baptized into Christ upon the confession of your faith in Him. This morning, the invitation is yours if you're subject to it. We ask that you come now while we stand and sing.